0: What does a CPA, a realtor, doctor, architect, an engineer, a lawyer, and a prospective college student all have in common? Well, they all have to take exams or tests of various kinds. They have to uh, qualify to hold such a license or to practice such a profession. Prospective college students uh, sit for the ACT or the SAT test so that they may qualify to be college students. Before you can do many things in this life, you must pass tests or a test or a series of tests. Before you can practice many professions in our culture, you must qualify yourself, prove yourself, demonstrate that you have a knowledge of the material and ability to Think and to practice such a profession, if that is true of human things, if that is true of earthly things, how much more true will it be of heavenly things? How much more true will it be for our Savior of the world and for the one who would be king? Jesus Christ himself, the very Son of God, would have to pass a series of tests and resist an onslaught of temptations if he is to qualify to be savior of the world. Grant Osborne, his commentary on Matthew, said it so well. He said, in the ancient world, all sons of the king had to be tested and prove their right to the throne. And that brings us to Matthew 4, the passage that I've read earlier in the service the great temptation of Jesus in the desert wilderness, and the great testing of Jesus by none other than his father. In fact, Matthew one, if you want to go back and glance at that, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, from Matthew one through Matthew 4.11 is a series of qualifying tests for this Messiah, for this Son of God. And in fact, as we walk through this, and we already have, Jesus has checked every single box with an affirmation, with a resounding yes, he qualifies. We may think of this entire section coming to a real climax, I would say, in the temptation account, We may think of this as Jesus's own job application or his resume that he is submitting for this new job he is about to begin. He is about to relocate and start a new job. He has for 30 years, minus his childhood, been a carpenter, but he is now changing vocations and he is starting a new career. And that career is one of public ministry as Messiah of Israel. And this is an amazing thing. This person who just blended into all of society that no one knew was the son of God. No one knew, except his mother and father, of course. No one knew was the Messiah to come. Who toiled away in a carpenter's shop in obscurity will now be the Messiah publicly in a public vocational ministry. He's really beginning a new career. Let me show you what's to come after today and what I mean by this. Just look at chapter 4, verse 13. As part of his new career, his new job, he will relocate. Verse 13, he's going to leave Nazareth, his hometown, where he grew up, and he's going to settle in Capernaum, there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And look at verse 17. Now that he's relocated, he's going to preach his first sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now that he's preached his first sermon, he's going to start calling his first disciples, where he's going to invest his life in his new career. Verse 18. He calls Peter. And now that he has relocated, preached his first sermon, called his first disciples, he is going to perform the first of his miracles. Verse 23. He will go about this entire region proclaiming the gospel of the clean. Here's his job duty. Here's his job description. Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. This is what is to come, but first he must pass these series of tests. So today is Lessons from the Desert, part two. If you weren't here with us last week, we got a a good start on this passage, but we couldn't quite finish it. And so today is Lessons from the Desert, part two. The outline that we've discovered in this passage is really three realities of Jesus' desert experience. Three realities of his wilderness wanderings, if you will. Reality number one is that God tested Jesus like he tested Israel. And we saw that last week in verses one and two. And while God was testing Jesus, came reality number two, Satan was tempting Jesus like he tempted Israel. The real backdrop of this passage is Israel coming out of Egypt coming into the wilderness, wanderings, being tested by God and tempted by the devil. And that very word, tempted in verse 1, can be translated tested in Greek or tried. It's the same word. It depends on the one doing it. It depends on the motive. And so that's reality number one. God tested Jesus. Reality number two, Satan tempted Jesus. But now the good news, and that's reality number three, is Jesus passed every test and resisted every temptation, unlike Israel. And we might add, unlike Adam and Eve. That's the backdrop of the backdrop. Of course, that's always the backdrop of all of Scripture, is Genesis 3. That, that's what's the foundation of everything, to understand the gospel and the good news of Christ. And so it is with this passage as well. Well, as you know, there were three rounds in this throw down in the desert. It's like a boxing match. It's like a wrestling match. It has three rounds. And round number one we saw last week was his temptation to turn those stones into bread and to save his physical life. He's near the point of death after fasting for 40 days. And so Satan comes and tempts him with, Jesus, take matters into your own hands. That's what it is, right? Don't trust God. Do complain and do take matters into your own hands. How did he respond? No, no, I will not do that. No, because man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man lives on the Bible in addition to the nutrition of food. Round number two then, Satan comes to him and he wants Jesus to, he wants, well, Satan is going to twist God's word, he's going to pervert God's word and misapply it, and he wants Jesus to do the same. He wants Jesus to be deceived in such a sense that he will not understand the true meaning of a passage of scripture, he will twist it into a fleshly, selfish act. Now, this goes on all the time. God, Satan is using human instruments to twist scripture to get people to do selfish, fleshly acts based on the Bible. That's what he's trying to get Jesus to do. He wants him to make a grandiose display, make this spectacular showman-like display of jumping off the temple and forcing God's hand of protection. Because I guess hypothetically, if he had done that, God would have had to rescue him via angels. This would not be the plan of the cross, of course. It's all hypothetical, but he wants him to jump off and force God's hand to protection. And Jesus says, no, no. Why? Because God is to be trusted, not tested. God is to be trusted, not tested. That's verse seven. So that was round one. Score goes, a victory goes to Jesus. Round two, the scorecard shows Jesus won round two completely. But round three, round three would be the greatest temptation yet. Satan is building up to his greatest temptation yet. And it comes in verses eight and nine. If you'll look at them again with me. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. It's only speculation as to what mountain that might have been. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you, I will give you right now if you fall down, if you will prostrate yourself on your face before me and worship me. This was likely a vision. I think the pinnacle of the temple event was literal. And this could be, but I I lean more here toward this is some type of vision that Satan took Jesus to in this very high mountain. Because he's showing him now all the kingdoms of the entire world. But not just their realm, not just their reign. He wants to show him all of their, what? Glory. When you see the word glory in the Bible, you can substitute the word beauty. You can substitute the word magnificence. Attraction. He's going to show Jesus all of the earthly kingdoms of man and all of their beauty, all of their attraction of every kind. This is where I believe the devil is throwing down the gauntlet. The devil is opening up and using up his entire arsenal here. This is round three. He's going for broke. He is throwing every possible temptation at Jesus in this vision. Showing him all of these things and saying, I can hand this over to you right this moment if you'll do this one simple thing. Now, you remember we said last week that each of the temptations recall a testing of Israel in the desert and a failure of Israel in the desert. The first temptation of of, uh, stones to bread recalls Israel grumbling from their hunger in in the desert, right? Give us bread to eat. Okay, here's bread. Give us meat to eat. Okay, here's meat. Give us water to drink. The second temptation was them testing God at Meribah for water and God providing. This temptation recalls another failure of Israel in the wilderness. It recalls their idolatrous worship of the golden calf. This recalls Exodus 32 where they brought their gold together and Aaron threw it into the smelter and, you know, in Aaron's words, out popped this golden calf that they all began to worship and sing to and dance around and who knows what else went on around that golden calf. Now, you'll notice here that Jesus does not say to Satan when he says, I will give I will give all these things to you. Jesus does not say, no you won't, you're a liar. Jesus does not say, you don't have it to give. He doesn't say any of these things because it was absolutely true. Satan did have it to give. Satan could have given him all of these things. Jesus himself says in John 14, 30, of Satan, he is the ruler of the world. Ephesians 2.2 2 says that he is the prince of the power of the air. The Bible says that he is the God, little g, of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelieving. That's 2 Corinthians four, 4 And he holds them captive. Every unbeliever is held captive by the devil to do his will, 2 Timothy 2.26. So he has the kingdoms of the world in the palm of his hand. He has the great men and women of the world, the great CEOs of the world, the great politicians of the world, the great minds of the world. If they're unbelievers, they are held captive by the devil to do his will. In fact, 1 John five nineteen says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is on the other side of the cross, folks. This is 1 John five nineteen, And it's true even to this moment. It won't always be true. When Jesus comes back, he's going to throw him into a pit for a thousand years. And then he's going to let him come out for the final war. And then he's going to throw him in the lake of fire forever and ever. But right now he roams the earth as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Right now he is the prince of the power of the air. So he has it to give when he makes this offer to Jesus. Now these temptations have many layers to them. And this one especially has many layers I think it's safe to say this final temptation includes the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. If there is a temptation to be found, it's found here in this third one. Our Savior now, 40 days and 40 nights without food in this lonely desert place, unlike Adam with a wife in a place of paradise, he's in a desert alone being tested and tempted. So we begin with the first layer of this temptation. It was a vision of fame, money, power, luxury, wealth, entertainment, and all worldly and earthly glories that this world has to offer. What Satan showed him in this vision was a snapshot of all of the pleasures of food and drink and women and servants And slaves of every kind. He showed it to him all in a flash of a moment. On this one condition, fall down and worship me. And now Satan is showing his true colors. Satan is showing what he was after all along from the very beginning. It's no more if you are the son of God. It's no more since you are the son of God. He's discarded that kind of language and he is revealing his true self. He is wanting the worship of God, the son. He has thrown down the gauntlet. That's the first layer of the temptation here. Don't ever believe that you face a temptation that Jesus Christ didn't face. Just because they're not spelled out here. One, two, three in this passage. You have never faced a temptation that Jesus Christ didn't face. He faced them all into their ultimate measure. But beyond these worldly pleasures that Satan is tempting him with, beyond the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, there is a more tempting temptation here that is the deepest and the strongest temptation of all. What Satan is offering Jesus is to bypass the cross and have the kingdom now. He is offering him a shortcut. You see, the world belongs to Christ and he will have it one day. And all the kingdoms of the world will be crushed and his kingdom will be set up and he will reign in the millennial kingdom and then forever and ever. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. God is the ultimate ruler of it all, even over Satan, of course. And so this would all be Jesus's one day. It is his inheritance. That's why he will be able to say in a few passages the meek shall inherit the earth and he is the meekest of the meek the temptation here is jesus bypassed the cross and seize your kingdom now you can have it now this is to appeal to his pride if he had any this would be to appeal to the boastful pride of life what satan is is saying to jesus what he's whispering to jesus is jesus come over here and let me show you a shortcut He's like a slimy used car salesman. Check out this shiny, comfortable crown that you can have instead of a bloody, shameful cross. Here, Jesus, have the crown without the cross. Who wants to suffer? Who wants to bleed? It's not unlike his message to Eve. God's holding out on you, Jesus. Worship me and I will give you everything right now. God is withholding from you. I want to give it all to you right now without the suffering, without the cross, without the wrath of God. He wants him to not have to go through the Garden of Gethsemane if he will simply do this very simple. How how much trouble is it to fall down and worship Satan? His temptation then is rule my kingdom now instead of dying for God's. And we face the same temptations. You see, the devil has no new tricks. He doesn't. He just redoes the same old ones from all the way back to the garden and beyond. We face the same temptations then. Think about it. Temptation number one. Find your life and your comfort in food, not God's word. Is that not a temptation? Is that not a reality of our culture? Find life and find comfort in food. We all wrestle with this. We all struggle with this at one level or another. Not in God's word. This is simply the lust of the flesh. It's never enough. It's never good enough. It's it's just this constant, constant thinking about and pursuit of bodily pleasure, of, of our appetite of our belly. No one in here is exempt. No one in here is sinless on this front. Or the second temptation, test God instead of trust God. In other words, this temptation says see to believe instead of believe to see. You must see to believe instead of believe and you will see. This is lust of the eye. God, prove yourself. God, put on a display. God, let me see something of evidence of you. God, show me evidence that you are real instead of trusting God. Or how about this third one then? Shortcuts that avoid humble suffering. This is the boastful pride of life. Anything that appeals to our pride or feeds our pride or protects our pride. Here is a shortcut that you can avoid humble suffering this is a temptation we all face how often satan has tempted us with a shortcut that will keep our pride intact and minimize minimize our suffering don't eat right and exercise take this pill instead have this radical horrific surgery instead this is a temptation of the devil to a shortcut that minimizes suffering or here's another don't open your bible and do the hard work of meditation and prayer turn on the tv instead pour yourself a drink you deserve it eat some chocolate have another bowl of sugar cream and whipped air That's ice cream, if you were wondering. (laughs) What am I saying? I'm saying this. Satan tempts us with immediate versus delayed gratification. This is his trick. Shortcuts. Immediate gratification. And they're all around us, like pornography and self-pleasure. A shortcut. An immediate gratification. Moving outside of God's will. Like sex before marriage. Like sex outside of marriage like marriage after marriage after marriage, like stealing something instead of working hard and saving your money and buying it in a righteous way, and like the temptation of the devil that has spread all over the world, exported from America, what is known as the prosperity gospel, the crown before the cross gospel, Satan has his religious teachers, his smooth. Slimy used car salesmen all around the world, these charismatic smooth talkers who are promising a shortcut, feeding the flesh of millions in Africa, Asia, South America, America, Russia. God is feeding the flesh of millions, not God, these false teachers with this prosperity gospel. It doesn't feed the spirit. It doesn't redeem the soul. It is a a shortcut of Satan. It is just like this, and it's going on all around us. And it has a stronghold in this very city. You understand that? This prosperity gospel, this crown before a cross, has a stronghold in Kerrville. And they will go around denouncing the strongholds of Satan when they are actually the stronghold themselves. That's how deceived and blind people are by the prosperity gospel because it appeals to the flesh, the flesh that we all have. It feeds the flesh and it appeals to the flesh so it will always have an audience until Jesus comes. When you see a church go from 10 to 10,000 in like three years, that ought to be a red flag. Yes, it's happened before in revivals of God, but more times than not, it's just somebody feeding people what appeals to the flesh and telling people what they want to hear. Have a crown before the cross. And that's exactly what Satan is doing here. I'm not saying all of these people are unbelievers. I'm not, I don't believe that myself. I think a lot of them are believers. I think a lot of them are being deceived by false teachers. Ultimately, then, here's what we have to realize. Every temptation is ultimately a temptation to follow Satan, not Jesus. Every temptation is ultimately a temptation to do the will of the devil, not God. Every temptation is ultimately about worship. Every temptation that we face is a golden calf of sorts, and it is the forbidden fruit of sorts. Will you believe God or Satan? Will you, will you go the route of instant gratification or delayed gratification? Will you test God or trust God? How did we ever come to think that it is never God's will for his people to suffer when the Son of God learned obedience from the things which he suffered? How did this lie creep into the church? Why are we so quick to avoid any and all suffering? When in often times, this is the very best thing for our souls. Every temptation is about worship. Every temptation is about who or what you're going to serve. Are you going to serve God or money? You can't serve both. Are you going to serve God or power? Power. God or your pleasures. God or your belly. God or your family. God or your kingdom. God or your comfort. God or your pride. You see, those things are all often diametrically opposed. We must not be ignorant of the devil's schemes. That's what Paul says, right? Do not be ignorant of his schemes. Thank God he has no new tricks. He's not really creative. He's a counterfeiter. He's a copycat. He's not creative. He's not made in the image of God like we are. He was an angel that's fallen. The same three temptations that he used on Jesus were the same temptations he used on Israel in the desert and the same three temptations he used on Eve in the garden. Turn these stones into bread. She saw that the tree was good for food. Jump from the temple for a spectacular rescue. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Gain the whole world. She saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So what did Jesus do with this third temptation? Did he argue with Satan? Did he negotiate with this terrorist? No, he did not. Did he entertain the offer? Did he consider it for a moment? No. He took control of the situation is what he did. He took charge and he said in a command, Satan, get away from me. Leave Satan and Satan left. When he addressed him by name, first time he does so, addressing him by name, calling him out, Satan must comply because Satan is standing before his creator. He quotes to him Deuteronomy six thirteen as if to say I will never worship you, Satan. Ever, ever. Grant Osborne says this quote Jesus takes charge and the battle is over. <laughs> Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The key command that Satan himself violated. Satan then slinks away into the shadows. And who takes his place? Angels. Satan, tail tucked between his legs, utterly defeated, slips away, Luke says, until an opportune time. And in his place come angels of God to minister to Jesus Christ. How would they minister to him? Well, surely they brought food. If ravens can bring food to Elijah, then certainly angels can bring food to Jesus. Food and water. They bring to him protection from wild beasts that Mark talks about. They come to his aid. They are God's messengers of help and and mercy for Jesus in this moment. And how interesting it is that God would save him physically using angels. Because this was the very trap of the second temptation. This was the very deception that, that Satan wanted to use on him. What Jesus refused to get by, the, by force of a faithless and grandiose display in the second temptation, he now receives through waiting on the Lord. He now receives in delayed gratification because he's trusting God every moment of his life. Three rounds, three utter and complete Defeats of Satan, three resounding victories of Christ, and this throwdown in the desert. What is the main lesson then from the desert? What is the main lesson? Well, Jesus passes every test from God, and he resists every temptation from Satan, and he qualifies therefore to be our Messiah, our King, our Savior. The main lesson from the desert is believe in Jesus. Trust in Christ, in Christ alone. That's the main lesson here. He was earning our salvation. He was earning our righteousness. He did all of this, not for his own sake, but for our sakes. He did all of this in our place, identifying with us, identifying with his people. So unless you have passed every test of God and resisted every temptation, unless you have obeyed every command in the Bible, and unless you have never sinned, I highly recommend that you put the full weight of your heart and soul on Jesus Christ and leave it there. The full weight of your trust and dependence and leave it there on Him. That's step number one. And then step number two, turn to Him in your temptations. Dear believer in Christ, turn to Jesus in your temptations. We don't defeat Satan. Jesus did. We resist a defeated devil. Isn't that good news? We resist a defeated devil. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The devil cannot make you do anything. Just as Jesus commanded him to go away, so we are promised, James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It doesn't say rebuke the devil. It doesn't say chase after the devil. It doesn't say try to go bind the devil. It says to stand your ground in the gospel and resist the devil. And he has nowhere he can go from that point on. Put on the full armor of God, stand firm in the truth of the gospel and resist him and he will flee from you. This is the good news of the gospel because Jesus Christ is the victor over Satan. We follow a champion who took off the head of Goliath. He crushed the head of the serpent, and we'll see that in full bloom in time. Remind yourself, as you're tempted, Satan cannot make me do anything. I am never going to be a victim of Satan if I am in Christ. I am not afraid of him. I will resist him because Jesus has crushed his head, and God will soon put him under our feet. Beloved Satan is no equal of Jesus. This is not some This is not some cosmic battle of equal forces. Was the temptation real? Yes, because Jesus was fully human. But could he have sinned? No, because he was fully God. And this is no yin yang. This is no good versus evil. This is no Star Wars. This is Our Creator God crushing Satan, step at a time, through His Son, Jesus Christ. Satan is no equal of Jesus. He is the creation of Jesus. And when Jesus says, go Satan, the next verse says, Satan left. That's the only thing He could do. He must obey. So... Unless you have passed every test and resisted every temptation and obeyed every command, and unless you have never sinned, you need to put your full weight of trust of your heart and soul on Jesus Christ. And then what? Turn to him in every temptation because the devil is not finished with us. Just as Luke says, he waited until an opportune time to come back at Jesus Let me finish with this one last question and answer. How do we resist then? If we're learning lessons from the desert, how do we resist? I said it last week. We don't resist by quoting verses at the devil. We resist by obeying the verses that we quote at the devil. Now listen, you can't quote what you don't know. You can't quote what you haven't memorized. So it really begins with memorizing and knowing Scripture, we got to have more in our arsenal than John three sixteen. I mean, that's like that's like you know all you have is a butter knife. I mean, you need a Swiss Army knife, right? You need the little scissors and the file and the saw and the you need all kinds of instruments here to to take on the, the devil. And that's what that's what verses are. It's what the word of God is. So how do we resist him? First, we've got to know, but it goes so far beyond that. We've got to trust. We've got to believe the word of God, live on the word of God, feed ourselves on the word of God because we know this is our life and we know there's a real enemy who wants to take us down and minimize our witness and discourage us and weaken us. We know he is real. We know he is there. And so we must live on the word of God, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, not picking and choosing what we like about the Bible, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Verse 4, all Scripture is inspired by God, and all Scripture is profitable, all of it, for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We, We need to be in all of the Word of God and be familiar with all of it to the best of our ability. And so we've got to know the word of God. And then we trust the word of God. We feed ourselves on it. We live by it. It's our daily bread. But even that's not enough. There's one more thing we must do if we are going to resist the devil. We must know it, trust it, and obey it. We must do what it says if we hope to resist his temptations. In fact, we can just start right here with what Jesus has obeyed. We start by remembering that we do not live on bread alone, that we are to trust God, not test God, and that we are to worship the Lord our God and serve him only. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fullness of your revelation in the Bible, these 66 glorious books of your truth, and we thank you for the fullness of your revelation in Christ. And we thank you that it was this Christ who resisted him in the desert, who would defeat him at the cross. In his most humiliating moment, in his greatest moment of suffering, he would actually there disarm the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and he would defeat the devil, and he would draw all men to himself, he said, if I be lifted up. So we thank you for the victory of the cross and the empty tomb. We thank you for a risen Savior ascended at your right hand. We thank you that he saves whomever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, because he is the authority over Satan. And when he says, release my captive, Satan must comply. We pray, dear God, that today our Lord Jesus would issue his authoritative word to our enemy, who is right now holding captive a lost soul. And our Lord Jesus would command him, release my captive. Let my people go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.